I think going to Lethbridge made me sick, Tony. That'll do it to you. Physically sick, but spiritually at a mentally expanded. Enjoy. We all set? Kick her off. Live on the World Wide Web, Class 5. Today is, uh, I believe, October the 4th, 2006. I'm Anthony Hall, and this is uh, a class at the University of Lethbridge, Money, Culture, and Globalization. Uh, we have uh, a two-half offering this evening. In the second half, we'll go to uh, the home of uh, Dr. Phil McRae in Edmonton, if all goes well. Dr. McRae is uh, director of the Alberta Initiative for School Improvement at the uh, University of Alberta. And uh, he is uh, on his way from on the road, but uh, he should be arriving home at about 6.30. We, were, we had difficulty setting up a, a video conference at the University of Alberta. He suggested, however, that we would try it through Skype. And uh, so Skype is a very powerful new uh, medium on the internet, and uh, it, uh, I believe, now has about 53 million members. And it makes it possible to speak uh, and be seen through through video uh, exchange or through uh, phone exchange. In a way, it almost makes the existing phone system uh, blows it away. In a way, it's uh, free communication by phone, um, uh, and you can connect from your from your computer to people's phones. Um, so this speaks to uh, issues of the democratization of the use of these new media. Uh, we're lucky that we can connect to other video conferences. Do a video conference with another university. In a way, I'd see this as almost the Cadillac of the of the system. Uh, but what about Volkswagens and Chevrolets? And if we're going to uh, have a, a way to broaden a network, Communication and not be elitist uh, or be as little elitist as we can, uh, using uh, simpler, more accessible means of, of networking 
I, I'm sure Phil is going to uh, talk about that. And, and uh, we actually haven't done connected this system with the Skype system, so we've been experimenting uh, for the afternoon. And, and if it goes wrong, it goes wrong. I mean, I, I, and I that's part of uh, what's interesting. It's in a way, this is a laboratory as I see it. If you're, if you're going to try these things, you're going to have to have to face from time to time uh, just going to have surprising uh, breakdowns. But uh, Dr. Spooner is uh, with us and uh, visited over the weekend along with his uh, mentor, colleague, Evan Thornton, who is uh, trying to get in, in, in our kind of configuration and network out of the UWatch site in Ottawa. And uh, so, so we're uh, discussing plans, and that might uh, come out. Uh, Mark, uh, thanks for coming over. And uh, Mark is facing the uh, tough decision, uh, will he go to the Rolling Stones concert Friday? <laughs> Believe it or not, the Rolling Stones are going to be playing in Regina, uh, and uh, his uh, significant other, or fast becoming significant other, is... Uh, it's under some pressure to go to the uh, Gordon Lightfoot concert in Saskatoon. <laughs> so, you go know, to Gordon Lightfoot. Lightfoot. Don't come to class on Wednesday. Jones or Gordon Lightfoot. What's it going to be, Mark? Uh, it's Saskatoon. Yeah? It will be Gordon Lightfoot. <laughs> I bet there will be hundreds of uh, making the going down the road to, uh, to Regina this weekend. Well, if anyone's looking for three tickets. <laughs> so in the first half, I'd like to uh, uh, cover material that I promised we would cover that we haven't covered as fully as I would like to. Uh, we Remember I promised uh, some focus on bangs tomorrow, um, and... Um, I'm going to go from that subject to look at a little bit at what's going on between the Vatican and uh, Islam, the Islamic world. The Pope made a, a fairly major uh, overture, um, and I think there's more to this than meets the eye. You know, that when we talk about globalization, uh, well, where, where are the centers, where, where are the positions of power on the planet? And certainly the Vatican is a very important center of power on the, on the planet. I look at the British monarchy, which is also the Canadian monarchy, and think that too is a, it's an important center of power on the planet. So uh, I'd like to uh, look at that a little bit. It's in the news and uh, part of what I'd like to uh, try to uh, uh, develop in this course and, and I'm working on is uh, that uh, we're reflecting on the news of the day, but uh, the effort is to give background on the news of the day, to not just give the sensational headlines and, and leave it at that, but to uh, try to uh, develop the, the sense of history behind what's happening uh, right now. And uh, I'd like to, uh, uh, in the first half, uh, spend some time to develop a little bit. There was a mass of information came out last week. 
Um, and uh, I would have to say that uh, being in that position with those two individuals and being you know, in an Indian-run institution of that importance, uh, it was a very um, meaningful moment for me. And I remember you know, when Esther was in the position you're now in, and it wasn't that long ago, and uh, and you know this was this is a blood institution, uh, so obviously I think there's a level of comfort uh, that they were able to uh, take on speaking from from their own place. And uh, so I'm right now working on uh, an essay to uh, describe. If I can go to the laptop, I'm not going to go through it now, um, but. Uh, the uh, the idea that these these video conferences maybe they need some documentation to go with the video conference and uh, and uh, and then the idea of developing you pointing at, pointing out some good uh, websites that back up the uh, the different information being covered and give uh, depth to it. So I'll have that up hopefully uh, by tomorrow or by uh, by Friday. Um, <clears throat> save, okay. So let's uh, let's just see the globalization studies. I'm still uh, working on this, but. Uh, this is the image uh, that, uh, in, a, in a sense, made me reflect on many of the issues in the what is truth uh, component, the two lectures that I spent on that, that issue. And uh, this uh, little bit piece of uh, tape here, it came out as a result of a Somebody going to court and a judge ordered this piece of tape to come out. So, you know, we, we went into so many different things. Uh, but this is the moment before the moment before the uh, object hits the Pentagon, and there it is. That, and uh, anyway, in, in discussing it with. Uh, uh, the w uh, webmaster of the site, Brian Lachmi Singh, we've just both agreed, like, there's no 757 there. Where is the 757? I, don't, I think you can see uh, some kind of uh, object going through, going through the screen there. And it really is interesting when you think, um, how, do you how do you evaluate truth? I mean, in the final analysis, do you trust your eyes? Do you trust what you hear? Do you trust your own sense of reason? Or do you say, well, high powerful authorities have told me it was a 757 and it's been looked at, and so there must be some optical illusion. Or, um, And I would like to think that you know you don't have to go beyond saying, is there a plane here or not? Is there a plane in this frame or not? Um, to, to then say, well, it, there's not, therefore, this happened and that happened and this happened. I don't know what happened. I, I just, I just can't see a 757 in this, in this uh, little frame here. 
So, yes, sir. Uh, Calvin. Um, just with, like, all the technology and stuff that we have now, <clears throat> is it, like, can we actually trust our senses? Like, when you think about it, like, this video, they could put Mickey Mouse riding a, you know, a freight train on here and make it look presentable, right? Actually, I did see a, 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 a spoof on it where they had a sandwich smashing into the... Yeah, so... Uh, yeah. yeah, this could be... How do we know this is, hasn't been doctored or... Yeah, like... You know, and really, like, you, you don't, like, you can't, unless you're the, the person that actually, you know, like, created it or whatever, was the first person to grab it, then, yeah, okay, but still. If we go to this, uh, this uh, board here. Um, anyway, this is, this, I've showed this picture before, but, you know, is that picture from above consistent with a 757, so... You know, you, you have that one picture and then you start to put it, you know, well, what are, what's the other evidence and are there other angles or whatnot? Um, so, um, that's, let's, let's not, uh, let's not dwell on that. Let me just go right to, uh, bang, so, more, row. <coughs> So um, now I've distributed uh, this uh, short excerpt from volume two of The Bowl with One Spoon. So this is volume one of The Bowl with One Spoon. And I'd like to think, touch wood, I'm in the home stretch of volume two. Volume two is called Earth into Property. And uh, so this is a very short excerpt from chapter 12. And uh, and yet, uh, you know, I think it gives a sense of uh, what the volume, the larger sense of the volume. And uh, there is a reference to Banks Amoral people in in this uh, in this um, text here. So so that's the the significance of this. And then you can see, you know, the footnotes um, that I've been the sources that I've been using. Um, and the Banks Amoral people. I'm trying to develop, a, a, I think, what is a simple paradigm. I, I don't think this is a complex idea. I think it's a pretty straightforward idea. And I, you know, I think it's important to be able to boil it down into simple ideas from time to time. Globalization since 1492, as I see it, the, the major agency of globalization is the building of empires. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church had an enormous role in building the empires of, of Spain and Portugal and New France. Uh, the British Empire had an enormous role. The, the, uh, the, the uh, Dutch, New Netherlands, that tiny, the lowlands, uh, they had a very important role in empire building in what we now call Indonesia. And... Uh, so those imperial systems created networks of communication, of trade, armies traveled out, missionaries traveled out. Uh, in some instances, colonists in great numbers traveled out. Those empires were the uh, driving force in the creation of a whole range of new networks 
causing people to experience one another and encounter one another, fight with one another, and marry one another, and, and combine with one another in all kinds of uh, ways. Surely that is, a, in a nutshell, what globalization is about, the reconfiguration of relationships between and among people and between peoples and the earth, you know, and the animals and the plants. Uh, Jennifer and I were talking today on November the 15th, we'll be talking about uh, scientific uh, issues with respect to climate change, global warming. Uh, maybe we'll do biotechnology, water, and what's happening to water cycles. Um, so, um, so the colonization, the building of empires, changes the nature of relationships and brings people into encounter that hadn't been in encounter before, hadn't known of each other, let alone encountered each other. And uh, then the resistance to imperialism, the fact that indigenous peoples uh, the world over said, well, we don't want to entirely cede and surrender our own heritage, our own languages, our own way of life, our own laws, our own way of living with the plants and animals, our own understanding of family. And, and I think... Uh, uh, you know, Charles and uh, Esther, Dr. Tailfeathers and Chief Weaselhead, gave a very powerful testimony that, uh, yes, we, we're going to take part in the modern world. Look, we're doing video conferencing. We're doing modern medicine. Uh, but both of them came back. There's something that we hold very dear. And in spite of everything that's happened, we continue to, to cherish what it is we inherited from those thousands of years of our, our presence here, and we don't want to give that up. And in order then to, uh, to take that position, you've got, to make, you've got to do politics, you've got to make alliances, you've got to make connections. And uh, so um, that, to me, is a form of globalization as well, that uh, the resistance to those empires and, and, and that's the kind of simplistic way to look at it because, you know, there is a certain adaptation to those empires. There's a certain taking advantage of what those empires have to offer. Uh, there's a kind of choice uh, uh, presented to indigenous people. Do we fight them? Do we join them? Do we try to make a compromise? Uh, or do we join up with other indigenous peoples and, and try to develop a, a large enough coalition that we can stand up for ourselves. So, for instance, the Confederacy of Indians that was led by a very visionary leader by the name of Tecumseh. I mean, he started traveling all through the interior of North America saying, look, they're doing divide and conquer on us. They're treating us as Miami, Potawatomi, Delaware, Kickapoo. We're all Indians. And uh, if we don't hold together, it's going to be you know, very grave for us. Uh, Esther was involved with the, the founding of the World Council of Indigenous Peoples. So take, you know, from Tecumseh to the founder of the World Council of Indigenous Peoples, George Manuel. And, you know, the concept of trying to picture 
picture yourself in bigger and bigger um, coalitions and thinking of yourself not simply as Nesitapi, Blackfoot, but thinking, well, we're also part of all the Indians of the Western Hemisphere. And maybe if we got together as Indians of the Western Hemisphere, we could exercise some kind of um, ability to protect ourselves, to pass on what we hold dear, to work in a collaborative fashion with uh, those who come in in our territory. Um, uh, so, so you could think of this as a imperial globalization and anti-imperial globalization. So I find myself wanting to put uh, adjectives in front of globalization. Uh, maybe the Crees in northern Quebec were talking about a kind of ecological globalization. I just find myself thinking, well, it's not like you're either for globalization or you're against globalization. There's all kinds of different processes, and, and we need to have a much greater uh, sense of clarity about the different aspects of that process of globalization. And to me, to be called anti-globalization is kind of an insult. Like, we live on a globe. Who can deny that? And who wouldn't want to uh, take advantage of the opportunities that we have for better communication, for more exchange, to get to know our fellow human beings? So to me, this, this classroom, this, uh, uh, use, this effort to use the medium of globalization, it's making a statement. It's saying, yes, you know, we, we embrace the opportunities that, our, that us of our generation have to know our fellow human beings better. And we need to bring our minds together as humanity and think, how are we going to live together on this planet? and make decisions on this planet that respect on the one hand that we're part of these ancient, older polities like the Nisitapi, but on the other hand, if we're going to deal with climate change or environmental desecration, we've got to do this in a collective way. And, and we've got to acknowledge that with all the differences that divide us, there's much more as human beings that we bear in common. And so in some way, this is a, a little effort to try to, to emphasize that, those commonalities and develop a, a better understanding and respect for the differences and the diversity and the pluralism, but also figure out how we're going to deal with the challenges, with the dilemmas, with uh, the crises we face as a, as a human species. Tony? Yeah. Would you say that it would be fair to make a division between cultural globalization and economic globalization? Because when I hear you speak, I think of cultural globalization where diversity is shared and celebrated, and yet I think of economic globalization where we kind of globalize oppression. Culture, I think, is one of the trickiest words in the English language. and. Uh, you know, it's used in all kinds of different ways. Mao Zedong had a cultural revolution, and the cultural revolution amounted to a, essentially a clampdown, a very draconian uh, effort to uh, stop elitism and what was seen as any uh, regression back towards kind of capitalism. And, and you know, people have very uh, dire memories of the cultural revolution. Um, 
Uh, on page 62 of the American Empire in the Fourth World, I've got a definition of culture, and, and I keep uh, bringing in uh, um, Benedict, Ruth Benedict's uh, volume, uh, The Patterns of Culture. And she was one of those who sort of popularized the term uh, culture. Um, so cultural globalization, I mean, is it, could you not say that economics is in a way uh, an expression of culture? Um, I, I find myself, yes, I want to look at the culture of the Blackfoot, but I also want to look at the culture and the banks of moral people. But I also want to look at the culture of the Internet. I want to look at the culture of business. You know, I want to look at the culture well, of I would say politics. The, you know, we the, can the, use, it's, it's, it's such a flexible term. I would think that the uh, anti-globalization movement, though, they're speaking about transnational corporations and the monoculture that they export, typically a Western monoculture that, that's being exported around the globe. And, and so when I say that, when I'm talking about cultural globalization, we may be wanting to celebrate the diversity that is around the globe without exporting that kind of a McDonald's sort of monoculture. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll can I leave it at that? I'll sure. So, Fangs, if uh, I can go to Fangs of Moro. This is a, a polity that has developed in the south of the Philippines, indigenous peoples who are Islamic. And uh, so they, they are of many distinct nationalities but they've developed a view of themselves as a, as, as a common people, uh, as a people with a shared identity, and the, the core of that shared identity is Islam. And uh, so the founding missionaries of Bangsamoro, and we'll go on some of the sites and just uh, surf around a little bit, but I'll just uh, offer a few comments, introductory comments. The founding missionaries who were moving from, you know, the Middle East, what we now call the Middle East, the, the region where uh, Islam was founded, uh, it's said that they arrived in the area uh, of the southern Philippines in about 1300. So in a, in a sense, this was a, uh, a colonial enterprise, an empire-building enterprise, older than 1492, older than the European uh, empires. But uh, then came the, uh, the Spanish... Oh, my pen runs out right at the... The Spanish Empire, which, of course, is overwhelmingly uh, Roman Catholic. And so the primary religion in the Philippines to this day is Roman Catholic. And the probably the most uh, lasting legacy of the Spanish colonization is you know, the continuing power of the Roman Catholic Church in the Philippines. So the Banks of Moro were, in a sense, in opposition to that colonial enterprise. Uh, from its inception, and then come um, then comes the uh, Spanish-American War, 
Everybody knows what date the Spanish-American War is, right? 1898. And this is uh, a straight uh, imperial land grab on the part of the United States. So a admiral leads a armed incursion in Manila Bay and simply guns the Spanish uh, Empire, the Spanish base in Manila base, and uh, so the U you know, U.S. government take over uh, the Philippines and organize it as a colony of the United States, and this is very much an extension of the same forces that we saw in the annexation of Hawaii, uh, and uh, you know, we saw the monarchy, the indigenous aboriginal monarchy in, in Hawaii and uh, Liliwa Kalani. Liliwa Kalani, remember we, we looked at, uh, at her regime and, and her expressions of indignation when her, her government was simply displaced through an act of, of war, as she saw it. Um, and uh, so then uh, come the Japanese, and they briefly uh, colonize the Philippines, and uh, they have a vision of a kind of Asiatic empire. The Japanese are uh, in an interesting position in history in that uh, they're one of the indigenous peoples who sort of gain an acceptance from the imperial powers in Europe that they can be an imperial power too. So the Japanese, when you read Mao Zedong, for instance, Mao Zedong, when he looks at imperialism, he sees the imperialism of Japan. And so Japan had colony in Manchuria. Uh, Japan uh, dominated um, Korea. Uh, there's a very... Uh, Japan, in a, in a sense, Taiwan is a kind of extension of Japanese power to some extent. Uh, but, of course, uh, this assertion of Japanese authority got connected more to the German Empire than the British Empire. And so the Japanese joined with uh, the German government, the Third Reich, the Nazi regime, and Italy and Japan and uh, Germany together formed what they called the Axis. Um, so, um, and then in 1946, there's the national government of, now this pen goes. Can somebody help me out here? Philippines. And uh, some would say that the national government of Philippines was a kind of puppet regime of the United States, uh, that uh, in fact uh, the United States passed power to a regime that uh, uh, of landowners, of essentially the richer uh, elites of Philippines. So since so in all of these empires or all of these uh, uh, periods of 
some kind of domination of the Philippines. These banks of Moro are, are fighting it every time. I mean, it, it's a history of, uh, of opposition to all of these regimes. So, um, anyway, I've, I found myself going through some of these sites and uh, so uh, history, for instance, uh, the beginnings. Let's go to ethnic groups. Bangsamara people is composed of 11 ethnic groups. Each group has its own language, but only a few controls a political unit like a province or municipalities. Um, So here are the different uh, sort of ethnic groups within the Banks of Moro. The uh, Yakan, the Sama, the Sangil, the Kagan. So these are the ancient Aboriginal identities, but together they developed a common identity through this instrument of, of Islam. And uh, here's an essay on Islamization. Anyway, you get a sense from, uh, there's just so many, um, so much information now. I, I've never, you know, I hadn't heard of these people until fairly recently. Uh, Wikipedia. So here's a good picture of uh, the three main sections of Philippines. Lausanne, Visayas, and Mindano. Mindanao, Mindanao, does that sound good? Mindanao, Mindanao. And uh, <clears throat> so the banks of Moor are associated with this southern uh, southern area. And uh, the reality of the Philippines is not that much different than, say, North America. Uh, we say Indians, but of course there's Cree, there's Haida, there's Nishnabek, there's uh, Nitsitapi. Uh, the Philippines is not one identity with one language. The Philippines is a very diverse array of people with unique languages, different languages. In fact, that whole part of the world, uh, Philippines, Indonesia, Malaya, uh, you have great biodiversity in those uh, rainforests, for instance. Uh, Indonesia has hundreds and hundreds of distinct languages. So Indonesia has, in a way, been colonized by Javanese. So to me, this is one of the real uh, fascinating things in history, that we've got to recognize how diverse you know, humanity really is. Uh, I keep coming back to the idea of 6,000 languages on Earth, 6,000 languages. And there are about 200 nation states. In 1945, there are about 50 nation-states. So the vast majority of the nation-states on Earth came out of colonies, European colonies. And so, you know, Nigeria, India, um, Uganda, Kenya, uh, these were colonies. Uh, and in the 1960s, they gained some kind of independence. But of course, though that period was a time of the Cold War. So there was this huge uh, contest between the Soviet Union 
the United States, and behind that is this ideological contest between capitalism and communism. So as these countries, as these former colonies became independent, nominally independent, there was a great pressure from the capitalists, from the businesses, to say, we don't want these, these, uh, these societies to go communist. Indonesia, um, Suharto was not a communist, but he had some kind of relationship with the PKI, which was the largest communist party of, of its day. When Sukarno was put out of office and replaced by Suharto, about a million people, maybe less than a million, somewhere between 500,000 and a million, were murdered in cold blood as uh, an expedient to rid that society of its communist of its communist uh, component. Uh, so um, this uh, this uh, decolonization, you know, it was limited by by the realities of the Cold War. Uh, George Manuel, this founder of the World Council of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, Esther, Dr. Tailfeathers, knew George Manuel. Uh, George Manuel's organization, the World Council of Indigenous Peoples, its headquarters was in Native Studies at the University of Lethbridge, if you can imagine. Anyway, he wrote a book called The Fourth World, and he got the idea of the fourth world from these African uh, delegations, their, their embassies were in Ottawa, and they were saying, don't call it third world, because that implies we're undeveloped or underdeveloped. And it implies that we have to choose between the first world, the capitalist world, or the second world, the socialist world. And then they came up at Bandung Conference in 1955 with this concept of the third world. Up until that time, they'd been using a phrase, people of color. And that was kind of awkward. So they came up with this, this phraseology, the third world. But the third world seemed, well, you have to choose. You either have to adopt this model of development or the other model of development. And so the invention of the idea of a fourth world, it was a rejection of, of that paradigm and saying, we have our own indigenous ways, and why should we be treated as if there's only an option between two systems? You know, the world has had thousands and thousands of different systems of political economy, of how you go about uh, structuring your relations. And I guess the, the word culture comes up in, in, in relationship to that. You know, what do we think is polite? What do we think is rude? You know, what do we think is good? What do we think is bad? How do we make these determinations? Like we're we're influenced by our society, by our parents, by our church, by our people around us. So, so that's the realm of culture. And of course, you know, some, what some people think is very polite, another, another group might think is very rude. I mean, the classic one would be burping after a meal or something. In some societies, that's very rude. In some societies, it's a mark of respect to show that you, you had a good meal. So, uh, so I'm suggesting that uh, rather than me say, you know, th this, uh, this site here is the best one and going to tell you what you need to know, um, that um, 
you can uh, explore these sites, and uh, and you know they're they're full of gossip. They're full of uh, you know advice to students on how to I don't know how to deal with computers, and and it's it's people trying to deal with uh, life as um, as it is now. Now here's a, here's a site which uh, really emphasizes the Islamic part of it, and uh, so there is a, a militant wing of uh, the Bank Zamoro, and uh, the Bank Zamoro are are uh, their radical factions are targeted in the war on terror. There is you know special units sent from the United States into that part of the world. And uh, you have a whole range of ideas among banks and moral people. Some say, well, let's try to live within the framework of the Philippines. Let's try to get some kind of autonomy with some kind of federal, within some kind of federal system, much like, say, some would say in Quebec. You know, yes, we have a distinct society. Yes, we are in a different position than others in Canada. But we we don't want to go as far as to separate from Canada. We like being in Canada, but we want some kind of special status within Canada. And uh, so you can see the you know the the uh, the weapon prominently placed here, uh, the American Colonial Administration. This this site is a uh, I, I got a lot of uh, interesting insights from. There would be. Traditional dress. So, I'm suggesting that. Uh, uh, well, I've told you right from the beginning. I feel I'm uh, entitled to. Uh, here's, you know, discussions group discussion groups on different aspects of banks of moral and identity. So, um, I'm uh, encouraging you to uh, explore that. And, you know, on the test, the test will be the week after the 18th. So you have your book review on the 18th. And I'd like to, I'd like to hold the test back so you can concentrate on your book review. And in your book review, I'm asking that you propose the subject of your essay and that you give a short description of possible sources you might use. So this then gives me an opportunity to uh, respond to to your idea, and maybe I can suggest some sources, or I could uh, suggest that maybe you should narrow it down, or maybe try a case study in this or that. So I'll be marking the book review, but I won't be marking the uh, your proposal on the essay. Um, I'll just be using it as an opportunity to uh, to help to offer uh, whatever help I, or assistance I can. So um, the book review, then the test, and as I have uh, repeated uh, several times, I think, the, the format of the test will be define and give the significance of, and uh, then bank tomorrow would be, um, I think, uh, I would feel entitled to ask you about that. So uh, 
I guess I, I've heard the word uh, fragment come up, that you know, that these are fragments, bits and pieces of information from here and there. And that, it, it, it's true in a way, but uh, I think what is the challenge in this is to, is to show the, the linkages and the connections. How do you get from one subject to the other? And if you're going to live in a global environment, you're going to have to be able to um, make these sort of connections and, and use the Internet, I guess, to, to find out. Uh, because, you know, how could you know about the 6,000 people? How could you learn about the 6,000 people? But with this device, we really can now develop a kind of overview or synthetic view of, 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 of uh, how things are structured. How are you doing, Mark? Doing well. Okay. So, um, so this brings me on the subject of uh, Islam. When I look at the Bangs of Moro people and I think, how could we make war on one another now that we can go right behind, if you like, enemy lines in any situation, we can communicate with the people. People can't be demonized, you would think, so easily when you can actually get their side of the story. I think if you looked at the commercial media, there would be an image that the Islamic population of southern Philippines is a very dangerous one and, and is prone to violence. Uh, but you know we can cut through that kind of imagery and go right to actually well let's hear their let's let's communicate with them and and find out how they see it. Um, um, so uh, obviously there is a huge tension developed between what we might call the West, the Judeo-Christian tradition of the West, and and the world that is uh, Islamic, and so. When we talk to Mohammed El Masri next week, Dr. Mohammed El Masri, the president of the Canadian Islamic Congress, um, he will throw out the phrase frequently. He'll speak of you know, the Arab world and the Muslim world. And they're not the same, right? There is a, an Arab identity which is largely Islamic, but uh, let's not forget that some of the Palestinians are Christians, for instance. Um, um, and then there's a much larger uh, c component, the Oma, the, the Islamic people of the world, the Oma. They call themselves the Oma. And uh, so um, the Pope's recent phrase, uh, recent speech, and, and a particular phrase in that speech, which I'll be able to quote here, has raised uh, a lot of tension and controversy. So I'm looking here at the... Um, if I can go to the to the document camera at the uh, National Post for October the third, so that's yesterday, and uh, this is a, a a talk given by Father Raymond uh, de Sousa, and uh, it's part of a series called the Newman House Series on Ethics and Public Life. Does Islam need the Pope? And uh, the caption beneath the picture is interesting. Pope Benedict meets 
uh, Islam envoy. So it's interesting there's no name given. Um, anyway, uh, this speech suggests to me that the Vatican has an agenda. The Vatican is a you know very influential player in in the world, and uh, and that the comment that the Pope made was not made uh, lightly or by accident or was misinterpreted. Uh, when I read this article, I can see it suggests to me that there is a very definite communications initiative now coming out of the Vatican and that this article is part of uh, a whole communications initiative. And, you know, we've talked to quite a bit about uh, uh, spin doctoring and public relations and perceptions management and advertising. And uh, so it's really uh, challenging in this day and age to try to detork the news and try to uh, imagine what might be behind it, what interests are trying to advance, what agendas through through the news. And I was struck by uh, how many times you see the word reason. So in our discussion of, you know, what is truth, I talked about the Enlightenment, I talked about secularization, and uh, the... Uh, struggle between those who interpret reality as an expression of God's divine will, that there is a plan, that ultimately the divine spirit is in control and we're, we're living through some kind of a pre, predestined plan, uh, and those who say, no, you know, we have free will and, uh, our intellect, our rationality is a great gift and and so there was a movement to pull away from the authority of the church and to develop science in a very secular way. Can you do science uh, other than through a kind of secular approach? Um, so uh, as I see it, the Vatican is signaling that uh, it is going to uh, try to identify Roman Catholicism specifically, and maybe Christianity more generally, with uh, this concept of reason. And, uh, uh, and why not, in a sense? And yet, you know, where was the reason in the Crusades, for instance, on the Islamic world? Where was the reason in the Inquisition? Where was the reason when it came to um, telling Galileo that he was uh, you know, persecuting Galileo for his conviction and his, his scientific inquiry and the results of it that said, no, the sun is at the center of the solar system, not the earth. The earth is not the center of, of the universe. Um, but in any case, uh, let just bear with me on this and I'll go through some of this text, the last portion of the text. Uh, the task of theology, which is the application of reason to, to things of God, and we'll just get closely uh, to, we'll get immediately to, the, or very soon on, we'll get to the famous quote that created all the controversy. All of which serves as a background to the lecture that Pope Benedict 
16 gave at the University of Regensburg on September 12. The address was primarily about the relationship of faith and reason. So I'm going to, uh, under, I'm going to circle that word every time I see it. But it was the remarks concerning Islam that were met with protests, often violent, in many parts of the Islamic world. The Pope quoted the penultimate Byzantine emperor of Constantinople, Manuel to Paleologus, who expressed a negative judgment on the history of Islam, making the accusation that Islam was spread by the sword. The Pope said, the empire... The emperor, after, after having expressed himself so forcefully, goes on to explain in detail the reasons why spreading the faith through violence is something unreasonable. Violence is incompatible with the nature of God and the nature of the soul. God, he says, <clears throat> God, he says, is not pleased by blood and not acting reasonably is contrary to God's nature. Faith is born in the soul, not the body. Whoever would lead someone to faith needs the ability to speak well and to reason properly without violence and threats to convince a reasonable soul. One does not need a strong man or weapons of any kind or any other means of threatening persons with death. Benedict asserts that God by nature is reasonable so that, so that which is contrary to reason is contrary to God himself. So that's a very powerful kind of idea there. It's kind of saying it's not really faith. It's God is dependent upon reason, and God uh, expresses himself through reason. In particular, to coerce by the soul by means of violence to the body is contrary to reason, and so cannot be compatible with God's will, which is always remarkable. Benedict further makes the claim that the conception of God as reasonable... No. Up, up one. Yeah. It's reasonable, yeah. It's always reasonable. <laughs> the Gospel of John begins, as the Pope indicates, in the beginning was the word. The Greek word employed, there is logos, which means both the word and reason. The Christian faith understands God not only as the one who reveals himself as love, God is love, the title of Benedict's first encyclical, but also as the one who is reasonable by nature. I think we're getting the idea that there is a definite effort here to associate the church now with, with reason and to suggest that there is something in the Islamic uh, world that is is, is, that must be made consistent with this ideal of reason. Man created in the image of God is rational. And rational is, a, is another word, but it speaks of the same. And the human reason uh, corresponds to the rationality of God. And human reason corresponds to the rationality of God. So now God is this reasonable, rational, 
intellectual being in a sense. Um, is this is this a new god or I mean this this is a, this is coming from the center of the Christian world. Yeah. Finite human reason <coughs> is not coextensive with God, of course, but human reason participates in divine rationality, which is contrary to human reason <laughs> that cannot be commanded by God or required by faith. This is, primarily, this is of, primary imp- of primary importance given the challenge facing Islam today. Benedict's address encourages Islam to reflect precisely on this point about the nature of God, providing Islamic scholars with a potentially fruitful theological point of departure in the argument which, uh, with the advocates of Islamist violence. So, earlier on in the essay, he tries to explain that there's is the word Islamic, they don't use the word Islamic, they, by using the word Islamist, it suggests that it's not really Islam, that, that the interpretation of Islam of those who would say that jihad is required, that acts of, of uh, violent assertion are required, that this is not real is Islamic, really Islamic. It's Islamist. That's that's the subtle distinction. So, um, any any thoughts or or ideas uh, on that score, Calvin? Christianity was spread Roman roads, and same with uh, like Islam when they spread. A lot of uh, people, like for example in Malaysia, took over Islam because of uh, because they wanted to trade with with the people that were predominantly Islamic. So, how does that really like? Isn't that more? That doesn't really work, you know. When, and when in the beginning they ultimately just spread based on trade. It wasn't based on violence or anything else. Uh, think of uh, you know the conquest of Mexico by Cortez. I mean, the, the violence in this hemisphere associated with the spread of Christianity is, 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 is vast. Based on that's coming right out of the... Inquisition and the Inquisition, in a sense, comes out of the, the Crusades. Uh, I mean, spreading of, of uh, religions is, has been a violent uh, matter in history. Yeah, you're making. Yep. Yeah, no. Publish yourself there. Okay. Uh, you're just making me think of a bead's uh, history of the English church and people. That's a really like bloody history. All they did was go to different empires and like, yeah, if you don't become Christian, we're going to slaughter you. Like it's in his own words, bead. Religious wars between uh, those who protested and uh, and through their protests they came to be known as Protestants. Uh, you know that dominated European history for hundreds of years. Um, so. Um, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure what the 
what the outcome, what this uh, initiative would be, but it does suggest to me this is a very serious initiative coming from the Vatican, that there is a, a shift, there is, a, there is definitely an effort to get a message, and, and when you see the word reason used maybe 30 times in, in, a, in 200 words, it kind of sig signals to you that somebody really is getting, wants to associate the Vatican with, it, with this word. Now, uh, Ma Mark, uh, who's in this class but not here tonight, he noticed this. Uh, this is a, I guess you would say this is an ephemeral throwaway item in our uh, overproducing, overconsuming mass society. It's an advertisement for uh, the uh, National Standard, the Western Standard, which is put out of uh, Alberta and more or less replaces the Alberta Report. And it's uh, closely associated with Ezra Levant, who is the uh, presiding editor of, of this uh, publication. And it's a publication very, you know, comes out of Calgary, very associated with uh, Alberta, especially southern Alberta. And uh, so it's an advertisement that appeared in the Globe and Mail. It was uh, inside the Globe and Mail. And uh, so all of these uh, large words here, fed up, sick and tired, teed off, upset. And then if you look inside for encouragement, support, and gun registry be damned, ammunition. So, I mean, I don't see any appeal to reason here. This is an appeal to emotion. And uh, this is the phrase here that uh, uh, I, I think in a sense there's a, there's a lot of clear thinking in this, uh, in this document. Um, teed off with native special rights. Multiculturalism and the United Nations. So that's the one that I sort of say, bingo. You know, well, you're talking about the Blackfoot in their hospital, and then you're talking about the United Nations, and I don't see the connection. And, uh, uh, well, here is, here is a very clear, you know, sense of going from the local to the kind of neutral ground, or not the neutral ground, the middle ground, and, and then the, the global sphere. Uh, and so if you are teed off at native speci special rights, you're probably going to be teed off at the United Nations. You're certainly probably going to be teed off by this, which of course is a, was a very big issue around here. The, uh, can RCMP, who are Sikhs, uh, must they wear the uniform that has been standard to, to the Northwest Mounted Police and the RCMP or can they express their their identity, their religious identity, um, in this way? So um, the, this uh, is a is a kind of segue um, to the final section here. Um, but this is uh, Stephen Harper and Ezra Levant. Ezra Levant actually was running in the riding that he had to move aside. And, uh, and make room for Stephen Harper in, I think it was Calgary South. 
Um, so it's saying that there is some kind of special relationship, which there is, between what appears in this paper and the government of Canada. Uh, the Western Standard is, uh, is connected to the new Ottawa in ways that traditional Eastern liberal media can only envy. So there's liberalism, so suggesting relativism. Uh, what the heck is Harper up to now? We, we get you to the folks who really know. When it comes to understanding what the feds are doing, what they're planning, well, rather than interviewing onlookers, observers, and other reporters, and many other journalists are reduced to doing, we go directly to the real movers and shakers, to the men and women who, in many cases, have known Stephen Harper since he was a teenager. Uh, Harper and his cabinet ministers regularly give us the news scoops and interviews, especially when the subject is the liberal bias of the media itself. So it's making some kind of claim that this, if you want to know what the government of Canada, what the key officials in the government of Canada are thinking, look to this, this newspaper. I remember, and this will be a subject near and dear to uh, Dr. Spooner's heart, when there was a uh, a referendum on campus here to break and sever connections with the Canadian Federation of Students. And there was a debate, and Ezra Levant came to the University of Lethbridge and led the debate saying we should break off from the Canadian Federation of Students with the view that it's a very radical organization, with the view that it's distant Ottawa bureaucrats, in a sense, putting their own agendas on indigenous Albertans. And so the referendum was successful. Uh, the student union is no longer connected to the Canadian Federation of Students. It's now connected to CASA. And CASA is a, is a, has a different orientation. The, the theory would be that, uh, look, when you get involved, when you, uh, you as a student being represented by your elected officials, you didn't really give them a mandate to go and say they're going to deal with what's happening in Central America or uh, deal with uh, what's happening in Guantanamo Bay. You gave them a mandate to try to lobby for better tuition fees, to try to lobby for your interests, for your sort of narrow student interests. The Canadian Federation of Students was based on a different approach, and I think uh, uh, Dr. Spooner coming from Ottawa were... Canadian Federation of Students is based. I mean, uh, you know, this this is a subject that uh, uh, you know, it's, it's central to to your your experience as students here. Um, so um, uh, here is a Stein. If I just before I leave this, uh, let me just go to one more riff here. If I can go to the uh, and so this is uh, he's clearly. Uh, done to look like Che Guevara. You've all seen the Che Guevara t-shirts. So this is a Che Guevara of the right, a revolutionary of the right. And this is a quote, you know, it's important to remember that national unity actually boils, actually boils down to, it means Quebec Federalists and Quebec Separatists bribing each other with money raised in the rest of the country in the sense that Quebecers of all persuasion are united in their determination to milk the nation. So this is a this is a subject you know which which resonates in Alberta the sense that Quebec dominates the national agenda too much that they use the threat of separatism to kind of bribe the national government to 
uh, to pay them off, and certainly that was the, what was the, the Gomery inquiry was all about. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, there's a very interesting dimension to this. Uh, there is a close connection between uh, the evangelical right in the United States and uh, the, those who support a very right-wing foreign policy for the government of Israel. The government of Israel was born in a movement called Zionism. And uh, so um, uh, there is a marriage in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in this newspaper, the Western Standard, uh, that marriage is very much evident here. Uh, and uh, so you see how Israel's war could save the region from disaster. So part of this uh, whole approach is, uh, is uh, a very pro-Israeli um, um, Israeli foreign policy uh, position. So um, in the last... Uh, few minutes here. Let me uh, uh, go from the connection to native rights, to multiculturalism, to the United Nations. And I think this helps to, uh, in a sense, put in some kind of context. If we go into native rights locally here, there, there does flow from those issues a whole set of larger issues. You can keep kind of building and building upon it, as the author of that pamphlet did, by by moving from native rights to the United Nations in, in, in a few words. So, uh, a lot of information was put on the table. nineteen eighty two the Constitution Act nineteen eighty two Google search <clears throat> so so the so you can go through the British North America Act here the Constitution Act uh, nineteen eighty two so let's just look at some of the highlights of this. How many people, uh, if I say the Constitution Act 1982, feel comfortable they have some sense of what it is? Or, um, yeah, so this, this act was ultimately uh, passed by the British Parliament. The British government gave all of the constitutional instruments of Canada their force. The British North America Act of 1867, which con created a confederation of four polities, uh, province of Canada was broken up into Quebec and Ontario and then New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. They created a polity with the view that they would purchase the Hudson's Bay Company titles, which they did. And uh, so in 1870-71, Louis Riel said, hey, you never negotiated with us. He made a point. Manitoba was created. Um, but all of the constitutional instruments of Canada, Canada was a, a colony, an extension of an empire. So the idea was to patriate the Constitution, to bring the Constitution from Great Britain and to uh, develop a domestic Constitution. But in order to do that, you had to go to Great Britain one last time and say, now, change the law. 
so that we now can have uh, the instruments to decide on our constitutional matters among ourselves. And when I say constitution, you could think of you could think of uh, constitution as kind of like the architecture of society. So in the House of Parliament, you pass laws, legislation. But what gave Parliament its power in order to pass laws? So um, the um, the Constitution of Canada is a kind of uh, infrastructure creating the instruments that can make laws, the instruments that can assess laws, the judiciary, the judges assess laws, interpret laws. And uh, uh, so the beginning of this is called the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. So it is powerful that uh, there is a reference to God in the very founding of the Canadian Constitution. So I suppose uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms defends one's right to be an atheist, but ironically, one's right to be an atheist is derived from an instrument based on the supremacy of God. <laughs> uh, so uh, just to give you a feel for uh, what what this document is about, I would say section 15 is kind of the spiritual core of the Charter of Rights. Every individual is equal before and under the law and has the right to equal protection and equal benefit of the law without discrimination. So these are the great principles of enlightenment thought emanating from Europe in the 18th century. Uh, these are the ideas that led to the abolition of slavery. These are the ideas that led to women being uh, enabled and franchised to vote in, uh, in the 20th century. Um, and uh, the, our, the main author of this document was a classic liberal, Pierre Trudeau, who was very much against special status for Quebec, special status for Indian people, uh, he was very hardline. Every province should be the same. Every individual should be treated the same before the law. Then we can have our multiculturalism. Uh, we can celebrate our diversity of heritages, but this is a kind of a um, recognition that belongs perhaps in you know exotic costumes on Canada Day or whatever. But when it comes to dealing with government, when it comes to dealing with the law, every individual is equal. Uh, and uh, so then we get to the end of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and then we get into section 35 <clears throat> so this little bit of wor this wording here the exist section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982 the existing Aboriginal and Treaty Rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed. When the court said that Trudeau couldn't go ahead by going as a unilaterally as a federal government to Great Britain, that he had to have a reasonable measure of provincial support, he met in Ottawa in a and there was an overnight bargaining session. The government of Quebec was not invited to that bargaining session. And the Premier's delegates, uh, their demand to give the approval to the 
Constitution Act was that this phrase come out. So that phrase was taken out. And then there were marches and there were letters of protest and there was a, a real upsurge. Another phrase that was taken out was that women are, would, be, would be treated equally. And I guess the fear on the part of the bureaucrats was that pay equity was going to kick in and that they would have to pay retroactively for the fact that they hadn't been paying women in their government jobs at, at, at a comparable rate. So both those issues, a political movement, forced those phrases back into the Constitution. But when the phrase came back in, you had this word, the existing Aboriginal and Treaty Rights. The word existing was put in there, presumably with the idea that the judges would look at that and it would narrow how they interpreted it. They would interpret it in a, in a smaller way. So in the court case that I was involved in, in North Bay last year, you know, this was the phrase, what does that mean, Aboriginal and Treaty Rights? You heard Charles and uh, Esther talk about treaties and how they see treaties and treaties are so important. Well, here is a reference to treaty rights in the, in the, in the uh, Constitution Act. Um, and then there is some definition given to this. There was a uh, series of four meetings between 1983 to 1987 to define this phrase. So over four years, four meetings happened in Ottawa. They were all televised. Uh, in their entirety for, for two days by the CBC, I went to those conferences and, and really got involved in that in that uh, stage of things. Um, so that's when we were we were talking about those issues. Uh, Charles and Esther and I uh, were we're talking about these times when when those conferences between 1983 and 1987 happened. And and I'll uh, just go to um, a final phrase here. Section 52, the Constitution of Canada is the supreme law of Canada and any law that is inconsistent with the provisions of the Constitution is to the extent of the inconsistency of no force or effect. So that's a very new provision in, that's a new approach to law for Canada because prior to 1982, you had the concept of parliamentary supremacy. Parliament could basically, there were no limits on what Parliament can do. The limits are the electoral process, the fact that the people who pass the laws have to go back to get a mandate. Now this says there are limits on what the legislature can do and, uh, and who's going to decide what those limits are? Well, it's going to be the judges, the judiciary. And so part of uh, the various... Um, uh, grievances that you would see in this publication, for instance, is the sense that judges are given way too much power. Judges are not accountable. And, and definitely speaking, the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms has, um, and, and, and the Constitution Act generally has increased the power of judges. So, um, just, I'll just draw it to a close here, but I draw to your attention if I say, uh, Uh, Indian treaties, Canadian 
encyclopedia. Um, that's a, this, is an ar this is a series of, uh, it's a long, long arti article I wrote in the Canadian Encyclopedia giving uh, a history of Indian treaties. And if I can just go down it, uh, tr treaty traditions, the covenant chain, treaties in wampum, um, maritime treaties. Yeah, I broke it up into bite-sized little pieces. <clears throat> um, treaties in the Seven Years' War, the Royal Proclamation, Pontiac's Patriotic Stand, the Treaty of Fort Stanwyck, treaties and land speculators, British betrayal of the Crown's Indian allies in the, in the Treaty of uh, 1783. Um, and, of course, I'm eventually going to get to, to the number treaties, and we're in Treaty Number 7 area here. In New Zealand, a great deal is made of the Treaty of Watangi. Um, here is a, in the text a, in the American Empire in the Fourth World a picture of the treaties, of a treaty map in Canada. If we can go to the document camera. <clears throat> so um, here is the treaties of southern Ontario where the system was sort of started. And then uh, here's a map of uh, treaties. And you can see, you know, 19, 1993, the Nunavut Treaty, uh, 2003, 1994, 1982, and then the Niska Treaty, 2000, uh, approximately 50 modern-day treaties under negotiation. The whole of British Columbia, or most of British Columbia, is right now in the process of treaty negotiations, 50 distinct treaty negotiations. So this is a huge part of the constitutional personality of Canada. Um, and it's, I don't think it's, uh, it's very well understood. Uh, we're in treaty number seven. Mark is uh, sitting there in, in treaty number six. Uh, or maybe you're in treaty four, Mark, do you know? I'm not sure. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it all starts, this latest round starts with Louis Riel and all of that around Red River. Uh, but then you go, and then, of course, treaties in 1929, there's a big gap until 1973 when the, when the tradition is, is renewed. <clears throat> and then uh, 1975, treaties made, made in that area. So... Um, so it's, it's, it's a much bigger story, a more complex story than is, is generally recognized. And the fact of the matter, it is the law of Canada. Section 35 does exist. Is, is the government, is the, are the corporations, are the people of Canada living within Section 35? Are, has anybody ever gone to jail for, for violating an Aboriginal and treaty right? You know, is there ever any enforcement if I phone crime stoppers? And, uh, say, I'd like to report a violation of an Aboriginal treaty and treaty right. Will I see a police car screaming <laughs> down the road, ready to apprehend the culprits who are violating an Aboriginal and treaty right? Um, and, uh, you know, it's a flippant remark, I suppose, but, it, you know, when you think of who is in prisons and who is the law being most actively enforced upon, 
you know, is there protection? I mean, the law is supposed to be even-handed. You're supposed to get protection as well as accountability if you violate the system. So there obviously is this, you know, how do we connect our local laws with our, with this larger order of laws, international laws? Can we come to think of uh, a, a new entities or polities capable of giving expression to political will, to democratic processes beyond the nation state at the higher level. All we have now is the United Nations, which is a flawed institution, which uh, essentially centralizes power in the Security Council. The Security Council is essentially the winners of, of the Second World War. Uh, that's what the United Nations was. There was the Axis powers, and those fighting the Axis powers called themselves the United Nations. In 1941, the merger of Anglo-America, the British, and the Americans through this issuing of the Atlantic Charter, it more or less laid out the general principles that led to the founding of the United Nations in 1945. But then the Cold War shifted all the hopes and uh, maybe utopian hopes that had been associated with the United Nations. So uh, hopefully we can uh, connect with uh, uh, Edmonton. We'll take a break, a, a pretty short break, and uh, uh, we'll see you in a few minutes. So how come, like, well, I read my treaty. I'm treaty eight, hey. And so how come, like, I don't get all my treaty rights? Like, what? What? I don't understand. Like, what is there in the law that? Like, is there, like, additional, like, because my treaty is really vague. It says, like, everything I should get, but um, but when it comes down to, like, going to the doctor or going to school, like, it's not just given to me for free. Like, how, how do they do that? Like, how do they... How do they decide? How do they decide, like, how much health care we... And yet, you know, they go to the communities and they say, here's $5. Sorry? Well, yeah, but, like, how... Well, yeah, how I think I could do that. That I don't understand too sure, because the five dollars—that's what they originally gave us, like back in you know when they first signed the treaty. How come they don't feel like a um, every year, you know, bring it up to what it would be worth today? Ten thousand years of treaty money. Yeah, I know they're like, yeah, it should be like that as a. Yeah. Like fairly, like other people who sell land, they get paid for you know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it it comes down largely to an issue of power. Like you know. Oh, uh, you're telling me what I didn't want to hear. Yeah. <laughs> That's like well, I already knew that, but I thought there was something else they do. Like what? How could? I just don't understand. Like. But in the society of, a rule, of the rule of law... But if this you, is like the Constitution is the law and the Constitution says that that we they're enforcing our treaty rights, but they're not... Well, then you go to, uh, say, you know, Vanderpeet. Like you get these court cases that now interpret the meaning of it and they just cut it down and... And, uh, and uh, it's a... It's a it's a pretty tough business. So Vanderpeet says, you know, every you basically I've got to prove you have whatever it might be, dog catching or 
repair style business or whatever. I mean, you want to set up a business or you want to assert your treaty right. So how are you going to, who are you going to ask? Well, the, it sets up a procedure. You go to court, community by community, issue by issue. Hello. I know, because like, for me, it's like something simple as like, okay, I only get $100 for my glasses for two years. Nice. Are you able to hear me? Okay, you should have video now. But uh, I can't hear you on that end. You can't hear me. No? We can continue. There's Cal. How are you doing, buddy? I can't hear you, though. Everything else is working. You think if enough Indians did that, that they would? Well, for me, it's an like a like. Okay, for example, I need glasses. Hey, I don't have glasses right now, and they won't like pay for them for me until March. And like, hey, they pay $100 for a pair of glasses every two years, and those glasses never last me two years. <laughs> so, like, it just, you know, I just want the same as, like, people who have more... Yeah, my phone's good on this end. More, like, resources than me. Like, they, I don't know, I just don't understand how people, like, think we... Got a nice camera, nice picture on Like, I've never even seen all these rights that we supposedly get. Like, I think I'm supposed to get a horse, and I never got a horse. <laughs> I just don't understand why. Jump into the technology. Okay, check, check, one, two. Very, very. Check, check. One, two. It's difficult to test audio on on both ends. How's it going? Yeah. Good. How's your week? Busy. Yeah.
Hey, you doing, Phil? Can you hear me yet? Can you hear me, Phil? Yeah. You can hear me. Give me a thumbs up. You can hear me. Okay. I can't hear you guys. So I wonder if you're nice. Uh, I'm hearing a little bit of a scratch there. Is that a little better? Yeah, there. I just, it was starting to come in. Maybe you have a loose connection or something? It was just starting to come in there. Your video is dropped off. Video's back. Go ahead. And you're getting a little bit of audio, right? That is perfect. I can hear you now. <laughs> can you hear me? Can you hear me? No, I can't hear you. What happened was when you leaned over there, I could hear it. You can hear me now, though, right? Hang on. He needs to hear your mic. Can you hear me now? One, two, three. Can you hear me? Hello, hello. Hello, Phil. Your video's dropped out again. Their video's back. <laughs> hello? Can you type? Yep. Can you hear me? I can. It, it sounds like it's coming through a bit of a muscle, but I can hear you, yeah. Yeah. Something's... I don't know why it's not. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Uh, How's the picture, Tony? It looks great. Perfect. Good. Yeah. Everything's down. There, that's great. Whatever you did, change the. Okay. Can you hear us now? You bet. Great. How about this, Phil? Is this all right too? Phil? You mean to switch him? Sorry. See the guy. Oh, see, I'm losing your dropping off now. Yeah, you. <laughs> okay, there's a max screen. There's a little the audio I yeah. on your end. I'm getting a lot of feedback. I'll turn my <laughs> I'll uh look at there for a minute. That's good. I'll just turn my side down. So your prepositions work the one in the middle, the screen and then the front. Can I get something on that screen there? The plasma up there? Yeah. Can we see still up there? No, the only thing we have to do is 
the bridges so I can have the PowerPoint coming on your side. You want to fill up there? Uh, a little difficult. Yeah, okay. Don't worry about it. Um. <laughs> you don't need to see. Just take a look at the presentation. I'm off a long day and I just finished a cold, so you don't want to see me anyways. Sure we do. And Okay, uh, Phil, can you hear me? You bet, yeah. Okay, uh, the con so you've got Bridget running right now? Yeah. Okay, uh, the server is U of L, and the only conference going on in there right now is globalization. So you just connect to Connect to U of L. Is it U of L? No, it should just come in as U of L, I think. Okay, so under your server. And you have all You have is not available. I'm just trying to learn here. See, the other way is I can send you, I can email you my PowerPoint, and I can see on the front screen there as I'm going through it. So you can click it through. So does everybody back there are great? Can you unmute mic number two? Look for lapel mic number one. Yeah. Okay. Oh, is there an, is there an email address I can I can send you right now? Uh, yeah. You can send it to phil.mcshaw.ca. There's no display though. Oh. It's the link. But to uh, I Phil, sorry. Phil dot what? McCray and Star A. Tony, if uh, this doesn't work, I'll just email you the PowerPoint and then I can see on the screen there. Walk through it that way. Yeah. Whatever. So uh, let me. Um, Reiterate uh, what uh, I had mentioned earlier in the class, uh, in the, uh, probably quickly. We're not doing a traditional video conference here. Uh, Phil McRae is at his uh, home, and uh, we're using a, a, a more accessible uh, venue, Skype. And uh, I'm hoping that we can talk about uh, the different types of connections, and uh, uh, Phil is going to uh, present, if we can get this up and running, uh, some commentary on globalization, technology, and education. Uh, Phil McRae uh, works at the University of Alberta, and he is uh, director of the Alberta Initiative in School Improvement. Okay, put that to my memory. and. Um, and I met uh, Phil this summer at a conference, uh, right in this room, at a conference called Interface 06. And uh, the CRDC is getting a reputation in the province as a major center for this kind of work. And uh, so uh, people came from throughout Alberta 
who are involved in uh, this new technology, and we had a good meeting of the minds, uh, I think I can say, Phil and I, and uh, Phil told me about his research on um, echo chambers in the, um, in the, uh, on the Internet and how people's identities are reinforced. He, he was doing a, a particular research project on a shooter, uh, one of these individuals who, who become demented and, and uh, go on a shooting rampage, and we've seen a lot of that tragically uh, in the last few days. So um, we can hear you, and uh, Cal is sure. working on something. So shall we just... Uh, should we just get started? Um, just before I do that, I'll just quickly do a side conversation with Cal. Cal, yeah. do you have an email there that I can email you this presentation? Yeah. Do you, can you hear me? Yeah. Calvin, C-A-L-V-I-N dot at U-L-F dot C-A. Okay. I'm just going to presentation, and then I'll do a little bit of background for everybody. I'd like to think that... Uh, Although this seems to be outside the curriculum, then in fact what's going on here is uh, part of the curriculum in a sense that, uh, you know, how, how you go about uh, connecting these technologies and uh, uh, using the different systems and integrating the different systems. It's something we all have to deal with. Uh, and um, so all of this uh, interaction and... Uh, technical expertise uh, and seeing it uh, just done simultaneously before our eyes, um, uh, to me, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an education in its own right and a big part of this initiative, I think. Okay, well, I'll maybe start and give you a little bit of my background. I was a teacher at Bridge, so I don't know if there's anybody in there that I know or if I have relatives because I grew up outside of Pincher Creek. So if I have any cousins, maybe that I taught in there, hello. Um, my work previously, I was seven years overseas. I worked for a sheikh in the Middle East, spent four years teaching mechatronic engineers and several of the, uh, the crown prince and the military there. I was working in an academic English environment where I worked with these people on all kinds of interests. And from that experience, I moved back to Lethbridge Public School District then I moved to Edmonton Minister of Education on learning and technology across the province and video conference facilities that are now in all the schools and um, different initiatives like laptop projects. I was in charge of those research initiatives. And then about two years ago, I moved to the University of Alberta as a director, and I'm just finishing my PhD. So tonight, when we get this uh, presentation up, I'll share some of my findings in my research with you and talk a little bit about challenges to, or maybe I should say challenges about globalization to education. Because in Alberta, one of the things that we do really well is we start things, but we don't often follow through as a, as a province. And um, when I look at lots of the initiatives that have taken place in education, we need to really rethink how our curriculum is structured in schools, how technology is infused or integrated into what kids learn and what's taught, et cetera. Okay, now, just received an email from Calvin, so I'm just going to open up this Bridget invite. 
you're not the only educator here. What's that? Greetings. I said greetings. You're not the only educator here. This is Dr. Spooner, Phil. Uh, this is uh, he's at the uh, education faculty in the University of Regina. And how are you? Good. Great Just to wanted to say hello. Do you have any teachers in the course right now? In your course, uh, Tony? Is anybody here in education? Everybody's uh, shaking their head. Okay, so I'll share my desktop. Yes, that's what I'm going to do here. And it is a messy desktop, let me tell you. Tell us what you're up to. You're, you're, you're trying to get this Bridget as a, as a, a base to show uh, your slides and. Yeah, what I'm doing now, I'm just optimizing stuff. Should come up in just a moment here where you see my uh, desktop. Should be coming up right now. Tell me when you have it. Yeah. And we'll start. Are you okay? Yeah. Okay, so this is, you can see the presentation then? Yeah, it's coming through very clearly. Good, okay. So, on the screen, what you're seeing is Alberta there kind of flashing with all of these dogs. I don't know how many of you have SuperNet, but in Alberta we have a $100 million initiative that connects every hospital, every school, and every government office with fiber optic cable. And that fiber optic cable has 12 strands in it. And right now, if we use only three of those 12 strands that connect every school, every hospital, et cetera, we can send all the video ever created, all the radio station programming in the world down those three lines. So we have a huge capacity within SuperNet to do all kinds of interesting things with technology. Okay, can you see now what I'm doing? Yeah. And it's, just tell me what says there. In the next one hour, four minutes, and 14 seconds. There we go, okay. What I'll do is I'll, I'll globalize the Alberta context. We'll look at students. I would imagine from the kind of snapshot of the images that I saw in the room, that many of you graphic and talk about to come into university with a certain literacy and skill. And uh, so I'll be interested to see the reaction. We have teachers. Experiences are changing very rapidly, a lot of that because of the technology in their home, and that's impacting how they use technology in school. And now, some of the, uh, as I said, SuperNet, and what are the implications of that? Then I'm going to look at uh, the global internet. And what my research has been doing is looking at how the internet has been changing over time quite rapidly. In the last three years, the population has gone from predominantly North American to a predominantly Asian population on the World Wide Web. And with that, um, people don't notice and just don't really care. And so I'm going to talk at the very end of this presentation about the echo chamber effect and what I see for education as a potential challenge. How's that sound? Great. Okay. Uh, Phil, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Um, yeah. I hate to kind of come butt in here, but we've frozen. Your video's frozen up on us, so I'm hoping we can disconnect. 
and if you wouldn't mind uh, trying to reconnect with us right away. Oh, sure. If that's okay, let's just take two seconds. Yeah. Oh, 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 there we go. You're back. You're back. Right back? Yeah, it's that easy. Okay. All right. I don't know what the uh, situation is there. The technology is always interesting. One of the things that we're doing, and Anthony had talked a little bit about this, we're doing video conferencing and sharing of my desktop in my home in Edmonton across regular internet. So it's very interesting at the university, $50,000 suite, you're sitting in a room that's probably thirty dollars to $50,000, and yet what we're using is a technology that costs $75 for the webcam and the internet connectivity and whatever my computer is. So there's some changes in access, and that was illustrated this morning when I jumped in with a group of 15 people, three of them Nobel laureates, one of them an advisor to the president of the U.S., and I was able to engage in a conversation with them because of the way that Skype is bringing the world much more together. So when I think of globalization, I'm going to give you my kind of conceptual framework or perceptions of what globalization means. And then hopefully this will frame the rest of my discussion for you. So first of all, I think globalization is happening for a long, long time. It's been happening in different ways and it's escalating, but it's not necessarily a new phenomenon in my opinion. Um, there's a global system of production distribution. And Walmart is a great example of that how they produce and distribute goods all over the world. Walmart. Walmart. Yeah. And I'm thinking of Walmart as an example because friends of mine adopted a baby from China. And one of the things they said is in Beijing, they walked into the biggest Walmart they've ever seen in their lives. And it had exactly the same goods as if we were to go down the street in Edmonton. So the phenomenon of globalization is creating kind of homogeneity around production distribution of goods. Information communication technologies, and oftentimes I'll talk about it as ICT, it's proliferating. In Africa, a lot of the fishermen are using cell phones now as landlines. They don't have to put in the infrastructure of all of the telephone lines. What they're doing is in wireless towers, and those wireless towers are making them jump right over landlines into the cell phones. So information communication technologies are all over the place. And I was backpacking in uh, outside of Kathmandu in Nepal, and this is 1997, and internet cafes all over the place. So we see of technology uh, all over the world. Although there is still a digital divide. Global migration is happening. People are moving from countries. Labor in Mexico up into the U.S. is an example of that. And then uh, difference is the new normal. We have access to languages, foods, ideas, and cultures that we didn't have necessarily 20 years ago. And I think those examples of globalization are interesting, especially from these two perspectives in education. ICT and how that can connect kids and teachers together. If I'm learning about Greece, how is it that I can connect with somebody who's in Greece, whether it was through Skype or email, a whole range of technologies, and start to get to know what their experiences like, or talk about shared ideas like food, languages, um, you know, things like that. So in education, we're coming to a really interesting time um, around the use of 
um, ICT and global education. By the way, Harvard University of its curriculum for all their undergrads, and their first recommendation I guess, is that uh, students have to have a better sense of internationalization. They have to understand other countries of the world, and they have to understand that in many different ways by visiting the countries, by studying them, by connecting with people in those countries. And that was a pretty extensive uh, review of their curriculum. So I'm sixth generation of Persians. My grandmother taught in a period exactly like this. My mother was a teacher. My dad was on the school board. And for a long time, education has stayed the same. It was primarily a public system based around an agrarian policy, summers off. And uh, that was so kids to go work in the fields. The traditional education seems. But one of the things that's changing in Alberta faster than even our schools or the way we teach it are the students themselves. And this is just a set of images of a whole group of students that are around laptops and computers. When I talk about technology, by the way, it can be everything from a digital to my Blackberry to computers, laptops, etc. The demographic communication is changing. We see a group of boomers went through the education system. They were between 45 and 63. We see the generation between 65. We've kind of gone through the K to 12 system. K meaning kindergarten to grade 12. And now we see an echo generation. And I don't know if you can see here, but the top of this echo generation here, this group is just entering junior and senior high school rate. So this is this is the highest proportion of students coming into school. So what that means is our school are really filling up. And soon Professor Hall in his class as opposed to 20, because those same numbers will move into the secondary education system, or they'll go up north and make all the money and not go to school. <laughs> a digitally literate echo generation is getting louder. So when we look at the portion of all the different groups, baby the largest cohort with is this echo generation. And this echo generation is growing. The internet, they've grown up with laptops, a connected or a more connected world. Maybe, can I just get back on people who are there? But what would you say if I were to go back here? Which, where majority of your group? You say they're boomers then. Uh, you might want to repeat that question, Phil. We're, losing the, we're, we're dropping a lot of your audio. Yeah. Okay, can you hear me now? Oh, absolutely. Which majority of the people in your class are they within the echo? We lost you again. It's it's it's. Are you are the majority of are the majority of the people in your class within born in these years? <laughs> Gen Y, I think. Right. Gen Y. Gen Y and X. Okay. They also, there's another name, Gen, and that's the media generation. Okay. So I'm just going to move on. 
In 2005, there was a group called the Media Awareness Network. And the Media Awareness Network did some research on kids in grades 4 to 11. 41% of those kids have an MP3 player. 30% of the same group have their own computer with internet. By grade 11, it's half of, again, their own computer. 23% have their own. 6% in grade 4. And it's 46% have their own cell phone in grade 11. And about 22% of them have for personal use. Goes up to 31% grade level. So when we take a look at those kids with a lot of technology in their hands in Canada, across Canada, 90, this is taking a lot of people right. 94% of the kids have a personal technology in their hands, have their uh, access, and 61% of those have high speed internet. Canada. Now, this statistic that came up has been challenged a few times. And uh, it means the majority of these kids connect to the internet and almost ubiquitously. So, what are they doing? If we look at the Organization of Economic Development and look at what all these kids in countries like Canada, Italy, Mexico, Japan, oh, my audio dropped out. Maybe it's better. Is it better? It, it's, yeah. it's really problematic. The, the audio has been, it, it just breaks up. We get sort of 75% of what you're saying, but. Um, okay. What video and that helps? Yeah, kill the video. Tell me to kill the video. I'm just going to stop my video and see if the audio works. Keep talking. How does that sound? Way better. I've actually, I, when I uh, when I mute our outgoing audio, it it seems to pick up, Phil. So you can put the video yeah. back on. I'm gonna I'm gonna try muting the audio. Okay. Do you want me to do the same? Uh, no, you shouldn't be affected at all. You look okay. great. Look at you go. Mm -hmm. You guys okay now? It's all good. Okay. I'll keep going. Thanks for bearing with us, you guys. I hope this is not. Uh, too, too slow for you. So what these kids are doing, there's three predominant things that are that these kids are doing when it comes to online activities or what are they doing with computers. Internet research, 55% of them on average across these countries in the Organization of Economic Cooperation Development. And again, that's a more privileged group, right, because it is uh, a kind of a European group, but we have developing our nations that are, that are in that Internet research, on average, gaming is the second uh, thing that they do with computers, and then word processing. So if we were to say, what are kids doing when it comes to using technology in their home environments? Internet research, personal research, games, and word processing. So here's an example of how expectations are changing with kids. Here's a young guy, and he's sitting there working on the computer, and his, his uh, dad is behind him, and he says, your dad says, I thought you you're doing homework, not into messing with your friends. I am. I'm celebrating rainfall from the Central African Plains with a kid from a school in Russia and another kid from a school in Brazil. 
Did I ever tell you if I had to walk to the library in freezing rain and look up information for my schoolwork? And these kids have told me a thousand times. So there's a gap, and it's a gap between what parents think um, or how parents think about using technology and how a lot of kids are using technology as well. There's a, a real challenge to the types of things that kids are doing online. Again, from the Young Canadians in a Wired World Research Study, um, when you look at the top 10 sites that kids in grades 4 to 7 are visiting, there's a, there's a sense of you know, commercial culture that's within those favorite sites. This is an example of one called CandyStand.com. And CandyStand is, um, you know, it's games, right, that they can play. And I remember working in one of the high schools in Lethbridge, was at LCI, I think, and uh, I was teaching, and there were these kids playing this virtual pool. And I said, oh, I said, that's really interesting. Who do you think put this up? Even though Lifesavers is, you know, right across the back of that. They said, oh, we don't know, but it's a great game. It's really cool. So there's this embedded kind of marketing inside the Internet, this culture of commercialization that's a little bit worrying in education. And it's something that we have to at least be aware of when it comes to the types of activities that you do online. Our teachers are changing. A lot of them are using cell phones. A lot of them have access to computers at home. Um, you know, their, their home environments are changing fairly dramatically. When I oftentimes present to groups of teachers, and tomorrow I'm with 150 principals in Edmonton Public, I ask the group right in front of them, how many of you have um, a digital camera? And, you know, I'll get 80% of the hands will go up. And I'll get them to keep their hands up. And then I'll say, how many of you had a digital camera four years ago? And almost all of the hands will drop. So in a very short span of time, the types of technology that uh, teachers in home environments are also changing. And one of the things that's interesting in education and around this notion of globalization technology in education is that that's impacting how they teach. They bring in a digital camera, they do virtual field trips, they take pictures of the class, they email it to classes across the world. There's a lot of those types of things that are impacting the way they use technology. Uh, here's an example of, I spent three years teaching on the Blood Reserve at Red Crow Community College, which is just outside of Lethbridge, and uh, then I moved, as I said, to the Middle East. And the, the jump for me from that experience to working in Dubai was pretty phenomenal. The two gentlemen that are here, the one on the uh, left, his name is Badr, and he wanted to research this kind of a, around rocket technologies. And it wasn't military, it was all aeronautical type uh, rocketry. And so he contacted NASA and we set up a video conference and a, and a series of exchanges. And he went to a set of expertise outside of the cohort of faculty that he had supporting him. And what was really interesting is at the end of his project, it was phenomenal. The information that he was able to pull from this you know, outside expertise, and I think he went to some engineers in, in Europe, was phenomenal. So the experience that I had in a very low-tech environment before I left Canada over to the Middle East was right when the internet kind of started to jump into 1994. So across, if I look at just even in my own, you know, world, I have a Blackberry, I have an MP3 player, small cameras, all of these types of technologies are much more common in our environment. Even though this might be where you are tonight, as considered a smart classroom, this is becoming more common, at least in the North American environment. And uh, when we look at cell phones, if you go overseas, you see that cell phones proliferate um, all over the place, and text messaging is much more common. 
So some of the fads or trends that are taking place in our schools as they relate to uh, the use of technology. Right now we have computer labs where people go down to a lab and they do their work and then they kind of march away. That's changing. Right now we see a big movement around mobile computing. So the ability for people to have laptops in their classroom. So I don't know how many of you have laptops right now, but um, there's certainly um, this idea that you know, in the future, there'll be much more mobile computing, including things like tablets, digital ink, etc. And I'm just going to check because I don't have audio. You can still. But we're hear hearing me. you really well, but you can't hear me, I guess. <laughs> can hear you. Yeah. You okay? Yeah, Cal made an adjustment, and you're coming through loud and clear now. Okay, good. I just didn't want to. I, I was going on and thinking, you know what? There's nobody there. So you're okay? We're right here. Okay, rock and roll. So mobility is not a fad, it's definitely a trend. Portability, there's a word around uh, technology now, and it's portability, and it's called tethering and untethering. So tethered technology is things like the phone booth and the TV that's plugged into the wall, and it's kind of tethered to a physical location. Well, this example that I just put up on the screen now is of a broadband television. So I just put this out about a year and a half ago, and you can travel around the world with it, and anywhere you have access to the internet, you can have your programming is all downloaded and fed in and you can watch wireless TV anywhere you go. It also doubles as a, as a CPU monitor and has a certain amount of computing power in it as well. Um, cell phones with video cameras in them, that's starting to, uh, we're starting to see more of that. So not just the taking a video and then emailing it to somebody or taking a snapshot, but actually this kind of full-on video conferencing. And then in Northern Europe, technologies now that are being built into clothing, and there's a movement there to have MP3 players that aren't kind of external, but are, are woven right into the clothing and the battery packs and the heating and all of that stuff, and with little solar rechargers so you don't have to keep adding batteries, et cetera. So there's some real movement around portability and technology. Um, when it comes to researching, there's this idea that you go down to the library and you grab the books and you go to a physical location to actually start doing a lot of your research. What I found in my doctoral program is that if I want to look up um, some article in a book, I can go to Amazon or, or uh, Google Book and I can pull that book to the, I can do a search for terms like intercultural communication or perspective consciousness and I can find out instantly within that book where there's, let's say, six or seven different examples of, of that phrase that I'm wanting to really read up on and research. And then, and I can pull up a little excerpt, and then if I feel, yeah, you know what, this book is worth it, then I can get it from the library. Um, we see Wikipedia in the undergraduate program at U of A changing pretty profoundly the types of, uh, or the way that students are accessing resources. Wikipedia is the number one source of information if students have to find some ahead of Google and ahead of the library, ahead of encyclopedias, et cetera. And that was a survey that was done by library services just recently that students will go to Wikipedia before they go to Google. And so I guess one of the questions that you might ask that group that's right there is how many of them use Wikipedia as well? Do you mind just giving me a sense of how many of them? How many of you Wikipedia? All of us. Everybody? If I would ask that 
question, say, three years ago, I bet you it would probably be, uh, you know, what's the wiki, what's Wikipedia? Paper's changing. Uh, in Holland, we see e-paper now coming out, and this is an example of e-paper. It's flexible paper that's digital. And uh, the e-paper allows for, let's say, a poster of a band. They can, they can put it up on a, on a um, pole, and it has its own little um, solar panels in it, and it, you know, it'll, let's say, scroll through all kinds of digital text. So e-paper is something that's definitely starting to come. And what we also see is a convergence of services. So just a sec. Somebody's phoning me at my home. It's another technology. That. Um, so there's an all-in-one converged solution that are happening. I talked briefly at the very beginning about Alberta Supernet. And Alberta Supernet has some really interesting implications if you take a look at it, um, different research frameworks and what's happened in the past. For example, when we had phones in Alberta and only two people had phones, you didn't do a lot with your phones, right? I mean, the phone just rang now and it could be one of, it could be a mar telemarketer, it could be my relatives, it could be uh, a survey, who knows who phoned just now. But as, as the technologies get to be more and more pervasive, as more people have telephones, the types of things we do with those telephones increases and it's hard to predict how they're used. So with a broadband network in Alberta of Supernet, video conferencing is an example, is starting to really take up a lot of speed. But there's three laws. The first law is Metcalfe's law, and that's what I was talking about, is the impact of a network to society is proportional to the square of the number of people who use the network. And so the more people that are on broadband, the more people that are on the supernet, the more types of activities we'll see happening in our schools. One of the conversations right now that has a lot of applications is a set of Bio30 students watching an open heart surgery out of Calgary. And they're talking about you know, how they can make this happen. It'll be a private network and so on, but has huge ethical implications. Moore's Law. Computing power and capacity doubles every 18 months. So you set up this network, but then your computing power continually doubles. There's some significance to that. And then a guy named Ray Kurzweil has come up with a, a new theory that's gaining a lot of hold, and it's called the law of accelerating return. And, and this says that technology isn't just kind of improving every 18 months, but it's getting to the point where it continues exponentially all the way up. So near 2000, that the computing power might be the equivalent of one insect brain. But by 2060, we'll have the equivalent computing power of all human brains pulled together. And what he's done with this to try and prove his theory is he's mapped out all of the technological innovations over the last, uh, actually, several hundred years. And he's put them on this grid, and he sees this exponential trend changing. So this has huge implications. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about some of the nanotechnology implications in a minute. So in my lifetime, if you take a look at uh, what computers were, an IBM computer in 1967 was $11 million and was 144 bytes. 2006, I can get a 512 kilobyte computer for $469. So when we talk about the, the power of the technology changing exponentially, even within my lifetime, people wouldn't believe what, it's, what it can do. Nanotechnology is one of those examples right now. When we talk about nanotechnology, which is very, very tiny machines, um, or very tiny uh, molecular 
mechanisms, I guess. It's it's an area right now where people say, no way can you you know take a pill and then boom it clears your your heart or whatever. Now that technology is starting to become a reality fairly quickly. And uh, at U of A, we just built the National Nanotechnology Center. I don't know how many millions of dollars were put into the research. But they're actually now able to harness a cancer cell and target an individual cancer cell using nanotechnology treatments versus large impacts of chemotherapy. So there's some real interesting trends around nanotechnology and biohealth, and et cetera. What, what is that? So 2010, computers start to disappear. High bandwidth connection to the Internet at all times. Electronic, so tiny they're embedded in everything. Our environment, our clothing, our eyeglasses. Full immersion, uh, visual auditory, virtual reality. And I'm saying 2010 because if you think exponentially, this is this is going to continue to happen. And I don't know, maybe I should say 2015, I don't know. I'm throwing this out here because there's a lot of projections around language translation now. Um, there's a, a live translation where you can pick up a phone, you can speak into it, and the technology translates into, I think it's 14 different languages, and it's being commercialized right now and should be on the market within a year. So there's, there's all kinds of things that are hitting really quickly and allowing people to communicate globally. Smart dust where, uh, let's say, in a building there'll be small sensors throughout the building. If there's a fire, the fire department knows exactly where the fire is, you know, strongest, et cetera. These are it's called smart dust. And I think we'll see a huge explosion in robotics innovation. So I'm going to just jump here and, and let you guys turn to somebody beside you because I need to have a minute just to see um, if you're able to pick up what this stuff is. That's the first kind of part of my presentation. And here's the question. Given nanotechnology and given all the changes that I've talked about, assuming it to be 100, what do you think will be the biggest difference between the world you were born into, and if you're all Gen Y, Gen X, and the world you're leaving? So assuming you live to be 100, what do you think will be the greatest change? And I put forward an example of Chief Dan George in his lifetime, and actually in my father's lifetime. My father rode to school on a horse, and uh, in, in Chief Dan George's lifetime, there was no kind of cars or roads, etc. And yet, he saw on television a man land on the moon, just to give you kind of a sense of how that, how that changed pretty dramatically. So I'm just going to give you five minutes. If you can turn to somebody beside you, and uh, I'd like you just to share your thoughts on this question. Nanobiotechnology. Tony? Yeah? I'm thinking nanobiotechnology, personally. Yeah? So we'll have a discussion? Well, I'm trying to. I've attempted to tell you what I thought. Yeah. Yeah, you're kind of left out of the loop, the loop for the... That's okay. I want you to have a conversation. Is it coming through the What's that? Is it coming through the 
you're, you're breaking up like before. Was it coming through okay that last year? Yeah, it was perfect. Yeah. yeah. We had a good 40-minute uh, run there, a half-an-hour run. Okay. It was perfect. Yeah. <coughs> okay, we'll try and do the same thing here for the next last two pieces. Tony, what are we doing for time? How's your... Uh, so it's quarter after, and so we've got, uh, let's say, 35 more minutes, okay. or 30 minutes. Good. Perfect. Okay, so I'll maybe just bring the group back together again, if that's okay. Can I get somebody to just share with me what they felt would be the greatest difference between the world that they're born into and the world they will be leaving? Hey, uh, I think uh, one of the biggest differences, we may not be leaving at 100. <laughs> That's what, that was the feeling I got when you're, with your nanotechnology and like Mark was saying, the bio-nanotechnology, what might be, I guess, surveying our insides and finding out what, what might be wrong and preventing things that might take us. It's interesting to think about the future of medicine with this technology. Absolutely. There's some called geoethics of nanotechnology right now, which is will only the rich have access to these, let's say, medical innovations, or will it be, uh, because traditionally that's what's happened, and I mean, in a conversation on globalization, that's where this really comes to bear, right? Is it only going to be the privileged few who have money and who live in, uh, in environments where this kind of research is taking place that actually have access to the benefits of, you know, a nanotechnology mechanism that kills cancer. So there's a lot of ethical questions around these innovations as well because oftentimes they aren't um, equally shared around the world. Okay, so I'm just going to, are we okay to move on? Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Were you okay? We couldn't hear you, Tony. Yeah, sure. Are you okay to go? Okay. Good. So something that's happened around the internet is Web 2.0. And if you haven't heard of this, this is something to um, really keep in mind because the web, Web 1, was a web where you built a web page, you put information up on that web page, and people did it all over the world, and they would broadcast out this information. And it's kind of, it's a bit of a, what I'm doing right now, right? It's, it's that I'm delivering information. And I find this is, for me as an educator, this is really hard because usually I like to be part of those conversations that you're having and uh, get those visual cues from the audience or from the group. So the web, the first web was that broadcast. It was really pushing information out. Web 2.0 is the wikis, the blogging, the uh, mobility. It's this idea that not only do you, let's say, create a wiki, but other people co-created at the same time. And it's not just there's one blog, it's that there's you know, millions of blogs out there. And those blogs, people are adding you know, ideas to those blogs all the time. So Web 2.0 is defined by interactivity. It's really defined by a, a dynamic web that's being shaped all the time by the users, as opposed to a controlled web, which has you know, these websites that are put up there and broadcast information. So Wikipedia is one example of that. I just finished teaching a class this summer in education, an MED, and this is the wiki that the cohort built. And what was really interesting for me doing, using this as an educational approach is that they were they really took it, 
the direction they wanted to take it. So instead of, let's say, I built a web space which had some resources that they then read those papers and, you know, uh, reflected on them, they, they started going down pathways and co-creating this web space based on their interests in uh, integrating technology into the humanities. That's the course that I was teaching. And so it was very empowering for them. It was also great for me to see how the web was becoming much more than just a space of um, putting the information up there. Blogging, there's a new blog created every seven seconds, so the blogosphere is unbelievably massive. If you ever get a chance to take a look at technorati.com, it's T-E-C-H-N-O-R-A-T-I, technorati. What it does is it, it looks at the blogosphere, and it takes the top seven or eight conversations that are going on in those you know, tens of millions of blogs, and it says, the majority of people at this moment in time are talking about, uh, you know, Bush or, um, you know, a YouTube video or something like that. And it's really interesting because it gives you a snapshot of popular culture within the blogosphere. Podcasting is something that's impacting education uh, already. We see the change in podcasting going from 9 million uh, podcasts, people listening to podcasts, to projected growth up into, you know, it says by 2010, 62 million. One of the interesting things about podcasts is it just brings another intelligence to the web. So instead of everything being textual, we now have YouTube, the video, and with Web 2.0, we also have the audio aspect of the web, these kind of online radio stations. And that's interesting because with kids, they all learn in different ways, right? And students, I mean, I'm a visual learner. So this presentation is a lot of images and, and, and so on. Um, so instead of just focusing on text, we now see a web that's really starting to match the multiple intelligences of students. It's an example of how podcasting is used in, in the uh, high schools. And what it is is the students recreate these, um, you know, stories, right? The murder of Abraham Lincoln. And they'll, you know, recreate the scene. They'll do a little narrative over the background. And to do that, they have to do all their research and they have to do this of central inquiry, what happened, how does it happen, and then they produce this little podcast. And it's really interesting because it's also used by the students as a review at the end of the unit, something that's quite interesting. Within uh, social studies, Google Earth is really common now. It gives people a chance to go into different parts of the world and take a look. I guess from a globalization perspective, what I find interesting, if you use Google Earth, go to areas of the world that let's say, don't have a large uh, GDP or where you see that they're, let's say, northern Nepal, even though there's populations there, they don't map those areas. They really are mapping the areas where there is a lot of commerce, et cetera. And uh, so that's interesting, I think, within Google Earth. And Google Earth is also a tagged community. So I can go onto Google Earth. I can tag my office at the Faculty of Education at U of A, and I can put a little note in there let's say a little webcam can be on 24 hours a day, and Google Earth now starts to become this global community of users with tagged information on it. Um, what's interesting about that, though, is that 20 years ago, only the military had that kind of access. They, they were the only ones that had access to satellite. 10 years ago, it was corporations. A lot of corporations were using it for real estate. They would take these satellite maps, and they'd find out areas where the cities were growing, and they'd map out what they wanted to buy. Five years ago, very sophisticated users. Well, five years ago, I was playing with, uh, I think it was called Terra Firma, and it was a Microsoft application that was 
doing a similar type of thing, and you could, you know, collect these different satellite images, and it was uh, it was quite interesting. And now everyone has access to Google Earth, and so if you haven't used Google Earth, it's quite interesting to to give you a chance to look around the world and to zoom in in different locations. And in the future, we'll see haptic or touch mapping. And one of the things I have here, but I won't try and play it over this, is an example of that haptic mapping. And what it is is um, you have a Google map on a desktop that's like a computer screen. And as you move the desktop with your hands, as you touch it, it actually zooms in on the map and it moves the map around. So people who, let's say, are you know looking at different areas of the world are actually it's, it's called a haptic technology. They're touching and interacting with this digital map as well. And that's something that's going to be more common. Another change um, is this access to authentic news. There's a lot of um, people aren't sure of the mainstream media anymore. They're not sure that it's a spun story. They think that it's continually um, created for sensationalism, et cetera. So we see a huge movement towards people looking at blogging as an example of authentic news or information. And when the Iraq war just started, after living in the Middle East for four years, I went into the blogosphere, this collection of blogs, and I found a young Iraqi woman's blog who was talking about what was actually happening. It could have been a falsification, right? It could have been anybody in so central LA making up this story that they were in Baghdad. But as you know, I, there was lots of the language and the cultural intent that I could pull out was very much from that area. And what was really interesting is the story that she was telling through her blog compared to the mainstream media was very uh, dissonant. There was a lot of difference. So people are looking more and more to this kind of authentic information. And to that end, there's something called RSS, really simple syndication. And what this is, is I don't know how many of you have seen RSS. A year ago when I asked this question, I was presenting to a group of about 200 at U of A. Nobody knew what RSS was. Now it's more common. But what RSS does is it feeds you, and there's an operative word, it feeds you this information. So you can collect, let's say, from five different news sources, a blog, a mainstream news source. Um, in the beginning of your day, it'll just bring all of that together for you, and it feeds you this information. Then you can kind of scan it, and you can see where there's dissonance or where there's common stories, et cetera. But again, it's feeding you, and that's, that's where there's some, some issues. Uh, citizen journalism now is, is really exploding and proliferating in Web 2.0. Uh, I have a little clip here, but again, I won't show it, of the London bombing when the uh, train state, when the subway was bombed, and it's somebody with their little video, uh, phone video camera taking images. That video was the was instantly on global networks as far as the video showing what was taking place. What we see now is this proliferation in Web 2.0 in this in this culture of sharing of people posting online or submitting to television stations, uh, radio stations, etc. Their take on the news story. So if something happens and they're in that part of the world now with all of these devices, they can take the visual images and then showcase it. And that's really interesting. That has some implications, I think, to, you know, everybody has their own sense of truth and perspective, and um, now it's starting to get shared. This is a website that shows exactly that. Um, it's viewer-created content, and it's an example of people who've gone out and done these stories, and they've pulled them together, whether it's podcasting or video stories, and they're, uh, they're putting themselves online. Um, 
CNN about two weeks ago just created I, I think it was it's called I Report or something, and it's this whole space just meant for people to. Uh, it was an interesting promo. Um, John Stewart made a kind of joke of it. It was like, you know, if you're in a burning fire, take the video and send it to us, etc. And it's this idea of first-hand, authentic news source. YouTube is an example of people creating their own content in in uh, in a Web 2.0, and that content is tagged and shared and voted on, and you know all kinds of things. And YouTube, I think is the number one website right now globally. It's the, it's the website that's getting the most hit, or it was. I, I shouldn't say that because I'm not 100% sure, but it's an example of, uh, of some really interesting changes into the, into the visual medium of the web. It's also taking place in classrooms. In Calgary, there's a group of kids who, instead of just doing the traditional class of, of uh, language arts, they decided to recreate Frankenstein, and they you know, wrote this, rewrote the script, and they, uh, you know, looked into all kinds of, you know, is it possible to recreate a human being from different parts, and where is it being done? And then they they put together a, a show, right, Frankenstein, and filmed it, and uh, ended up winning uh, or getting selected for the New York Film Festival as a project. So, you know, we see student filmmaking as a, using video in classrooms as pretty common trend right now. 405themovie.com, if you haven't seen it, it's another really great example of how uh, these are two students, they were high school students, and they were doing a media class. It took them three months, two home computers, a digital camera in their time, and they created this thing called 405 the Movie. And it's brilliant. It's, it's almost Hollywood quality little vignette uh, that's worth watching if you haven't seen it. So again, I show this usually, but it, it really puts it into perspective that there is a new digital literacy with our youth. Because when you watch this, you'd think it would be made from a Hollywood studio. Um, okay, I'm just going to, before I get into this last section here, I'm just going to check to see if it's really looking really dropped off. Sounds great. Just want to check that everything's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sound good? Good. Sorry. I know this is strange, but I just, I'm, it's almost like I'm in the dark here trying to see if you guys are still with me and I'm just rambling on. So, um, what I want to do for this last piece is, um, we have about just under 10 minutes left, talk about now really the heart of this, how the internet is changing and how rapidly the global internet is shifting. This is data that I've been collecting for my doctoral work. In 2002, um, from a collection of multiple sources, Nielsen Net Ratings, the International Telecommunications Union Computer Industry Almanac, Almanac and this all comes from uh, uh, internetworlds.com. It's a site that is run out of um, Columbia, and the Pew Internet Symposium as well as a, as a group that collects this data. It shows the global internet utilization by world region. So if you take a look at this 2002, you take a look at where North America was. North America had 37% of the share of the internet as far as users, based on the percentage of world total. And over those four years, we see it drop from 37% to 22%. 
So we see Asia moving from 30% up to 36%. We see Europe kind of changing somewhat, Latin America increasing. Africa, again, we see a drop-off. And if you start to look at which global economies have been really hot over the last uh, four years, you can see a shift as well in, in the internet utilization. And this is, this is an interesting snapshot of the web because if in 2002 the majority of people on the internet were predominantly North American, then that means that the websites are predominantly English, that all of the types of activities around that were happening on the internet were predominantly of that kind of cultural sensibility, right? Um, I'm just going to jump up here. What's interesting is that uh, that backbone to the internet is really comes from this group of people, and this is ARPANET. This is the first group that pulled together the internet. And if you take a look at them, they're a pretty common group of male, you know, socioeconomically middle class uh, engineers, and uh, you know this their value system was embedded into the internet. So the way that they thought and the way that they wanted the internet to be kind of dictated the cultural actions on the internet. And Google, which is the you know, largest uh, search engine, really reflects those same common values. And those values are speed, reach, transparency, and democracy. And if you take a look at the corporate information on Google on their website, they have these statements, fast is better than slow. The need for information crosses all borders. You can make money without being evil, and democracy on the web works. So these, these are value statements that have been built into the way that the internet works. The instantaneous connection of email, the connection of video conferencing, etc. And those cultural values aren't necessarily shared globally. So when we think of the internet for educational practice, when we think of the internet for, uh, even in terms of how is it impacting different cultures around the world, I think we have to go back to this group and remember that their value system is still embedded in the internet. It doesn't mean the internet will always be like that, um, because it is changing. But at this point in time, a lot of those values still hold true. Uh, is English as a lingua franca changing? If we take a look at the top 10 languages in 2005, we see English is still the predominant language online. And it goes Chinese, Japanese, Spanish, German, French. But what's interesting about this um, information is, I don't know if I have it here, it comes through. Um, Chinese language is growing at 200% and English language is growing at about 80%. So what we see is, is the type of, of discourse and blog, the, the language of websites, the type of searching that are done will increasingly be in different languages than just English. So to this final piece, this echo chamber effect. The echo chamber effect is um, uh, a theory that says, even given all this variety, given all of these people on the internet, given all of this web 2.0 and collaboration and, uh, and ability to um, share on the web, there's still this, I'm hearing my own voice echo back to me, concept taking place. And in some of my doctoral research, I'm looking at an example of a young man named Jeffrey Wise. He's a young boy from Red Lake, Minnesota. And he was considered this isolated youth. And 
his classroom by his peers and family, et cetera, so he's kind of a loner. And he went on to the Libertarian National Socialist Green Party website. And over a period of months, he posted uh, several kind of comments. Are you okay? Yeah, we yeah. can hear you loud and clear. I'm very interested. Okay. So in 2004, at 12.00 morning, this young guy, Jeff Wise, introduces himself into this Nazi forum. And he says, my name is Jeff Wise, a Native American from Red Lake Indian Reservation, Minnesota. I'm interested in joining the group as I support your ideals. And even though I'm young, I still want to join. What is the age requirement? And then there's these postings from other people on this website. Um, there's a picture of a mind is done. so brave to people the way you do. Uh, there's a place for you. I hope you stick with us. We welcome you, brother. It goes on, right? And there's several postings that kind of welcome him into this group. So he enters this group as somebody who really is looking for bolstering uh, kind of a neo-Nazi ideology. And what we find is over time, through April through May, he becomes more and more involved in these conversations. What I did is I captured all of these conversations and I followed how he started to get, I mean, these are just excerpts, but, uh, and you can find it on Google. Uh, if you do a search on Jeff Wise as well, you can find all of his online kind of tracks and postings because that's an example of the web as well. Things are just out there permanently. Um, what happened is by the end of May, you see him saying, I'm wondering if there was a way to become a more active member besides posting on this board. I can't really think of anything else to do. Any ideas? I may be young, but I'm willing to help. And within a month and a half, he goes into the school and he shoots up the school. So what's happened is over time in this little echo chamber, we see this reinforcing of this ideology and this bolstering. Instead of, let's say, in his community, one young person who has a fringe thinking, now he's on a bulletin board with, you know, I think there were 1,200 uh, members of the National Socialist Liberation Party. And this happened in the blogosphere around the U.S. presidential elections as well. The Democratic blogosphere was absolutely convinced that uh, John Kerry was going to win the election. And on election eve, the, the way that they're, you know, were reinforcing each other, the way that they could hear their own voices echoing back and forth was literally people were convinced, and I was in the blogosphere uh, during the election, people were convinced that John Kerry had won. And there was a dramatic change, of course, Bush won, and he won significantly in the last election. But people had kind of got caught in these echo chambers. And that has some real challenges to critical thinking online, because there's the sense of uh, people only going to those spaces that resonate with their own belief system. They won't go to other cultures or other perspectives. They'll only try and seek out these online environments that really match their own thinking. And that, in, as far as an educational perspective goes, doesn't promote this sense of critical thinking. So there's, uh, I think, some real issues. And I'm looking at the uh, Montreal shooter, and uh, he had a pretty prolific um, online um, set of postings and conversation on vampirefreaks.com. And the uh, Professor Hall was just telling me, and I didn't know this, that the Medicine Hat boy had been in conversation with him on that same forum. The Medicine Hat boy who had killed his girlfriend's parents and, and her brother, etc. So there's some really interesting reinforcing happening in these uh, kind of most extreme examples. 
But again, a democratic example isn't as extreme, but it's still an echo chamber effect. Um, this example of he was, you know, people said he, he was a loner, right? He was a goth. He had no friends. He didn't communicate. When I went into his livejournal.com website, Jeff Wise had 263 virtual friends linked. So that means that people that had actually sought him out and, and had connected and he had allowed them to join him, etc. So, you know, there's by no means was this guy in an online uh, identity or persona, was he necessarily isolated? And so you have to wonder what the echo chamber effect might have done to his actions in the school. Um, and this last uh, little bit here, the 10by10.org, is a snapshot of perhaps how the echo chamber effect is visually manifesting itself on the internet. So this is a snapshot of a website called 10by10.org, and it takes 100 um, oh, what is it? It's 100 words and pictures that are within, you know, BBC Online, CBC, CNN, all of the mass media, kind of what the mass media is portraying as the top stories. When you take a look at this grid, these, each of those boxes will be a different media outlet. One might be BBC, another one might be CBC, another one might be the, you know, Johannesburg Times. But you start to see the same images repeated consistently throughout all of these different media organizations. And so there's a homogenization taking place here as well. There's this kind of sense of repetition that you can see even in um, you know, the Iranian presence, the same image being shared across networks. So if you're only looking at one of them, BBC or Johannesburg Times or you know, uh, CBC, whatever, you think, okay, well, this is the front of the website or the newspaper. But when you start to look at that same image being repeated consistently, then there's this homogeneity, this echo chambering happen even within the visual uh, kind of stream. So this is where I'm going to um, leave the last question for you to talk about. And I just want you to take two or three minutes uh, with somebody beside you. And uh, I put it forward as, as a bit of a challenge because this is emerging research that I'm doing around the echo chamber effect, et cetera. But to what extent is our increasingly interconnected world actually leading to more isolation and fragmentation of community, real and or virtual? So whether people are online or whether they're, you know, face to face, how if we have a more interconnected and, and increasingly, uh, you know, connected world, as I showed at the very beginning with the the uh, stats on kids and computer use in homes, et cetera, and kind of global access to the internet, um, you know, are are we are we actually getting to be less global the more connected we are? Do we isolate ourselves back into those spaces that really uh, match our own way of thinking? And what are the implications of that to critical thinking, especially in education? So I'll give you about five minutes and just talk about that, and then we'll wrap things up. Pass, um, but I, I do have a sense that uh, there's a critique. I mean, the, the presentation. Um, there is a uh, sense that te technology is going to improve education. It's going to uh, uh, enable us to reach out. I know David Noble, who works with uh, Mark 
is you know very critical of uh, the way the education systems are using technology for cost efficiency really oftentimes the objective doesn't seem to be in to enhance education but to deliver education more cheaply the better commodity to to increase the commodification uh, I'm, I'm thinking there might be a, a little exchange that might happen at, at this uh, moment we're almost out of time is that fair enough Phil you bet. Yeah, that was just the last question I wanted to leave out there for everybody. Mark? Yeah, I'd like to say that as an educator, I found Phil's presentation uh, quite riveting, and I'm really happy I got to partake in it, for one. Well, I hope, I mean, <clears throat> for the group that was there, you know, it's <clears throat> trying to, from the lens that I have as an educator, um, the implications for our society uh, and our education system. I mean, I've given you a lot of information in a very short period of time, but, you know, it's, um, as Professor Hall was saying, technology is kind of tied to capitalism and commodification, et cetera, and has been since its origin. Yet, I tend to take a kind of a hopeful look at globalization, technology, and education, in that, you know, if we're really actively seeking out other perspectives and other cultures and other people, we can start to share different uh, different perspectives because now the technology does connect us. But we have to actively do that because what I'm seeing is we're actually hibernating in these little echo chambers as opposed to reaching out to others. Any, anybody in the class want to? Yeah. Uh, Matt, question about like, if, yeah, right now we use a lot of new technologies to improve our education, it's true. But uh, children, they don't only get education from school. They only they also can get education from their parents. If they hang around like with new techniques all the time, uh, like play internet all the time, and then when are they going to get other part of education from their parents? And I think that's a really key key piece of, you know, outside, I mean, how much do we actually learn even in a formal education setting? Adult learning theory says 20% of what we pick up is from a class like this, and 80% is informally. It's from peers, it's from our family, it's from, you know, friends. So, I mean, I would agree with you. I think 80% of what we learn is actually learned informally, and it's learned through, through kind of, uh, collaborations and friends and peers and family, et cetera. And 20% is maybe a catalyst for thinking. Uh, well, I just wanted to say, I think one thing you'll see is the way we use internet changing within families. Because right now I think it may be uh, something where kids do individually, where the parents aren't really always connected. Yet I think increasingly it'll be another family activity where kids and the parents all use the internet together. But the thing is, Right now, uh, right now, children, they... Turn it back on. She's on. It's just She's not. Yeah, she is in, in one of the... Stuff oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's on. So, right now, the computer actually, they, instead of, like, parenting by real parents, computer, are doing this thing for the parents, right? The thing is, like, 
children, they don't only need um, like academic education. They all they also need emotional support, right? But can new techniques give them emotional support? Well, I think um, when you look at instant messaging activity, where kids are, you know, chatting through um, what's it called? Someone help me out here. MSN. MSN. Right. Yeah, MSN or even Skype, etc. What's happened is that's actually replaced a lot of the. What used to happen is kids would go home, they pick up the phone, they phone their friends. Well, now they go home, they immediately get on the computer and the IM, the instant message. So the emotional support that takes place through a digital medium, I think, is uh, still happening. I think it's happening, you know, even through this instant messaging type activity. Whether or not that's what kids need. I think I, I would totally agree with you that they need other social emotional supports that come from human interaction away from technology. So I agree with you. But I think that they also get a lot of that. Uh, one of the challenges for kids is that they're always on. You know, before they might go home, they might pick up the phone, but they talk for a while and then they get off the phone. Now with having their cell phones and the instant messaging, they don't leave school. They're connected to their friends all the time. And that can create some real pressure and tension, right? Because they can't get away from some of that peer environment. Yeah, but we, we talk about like uh, how the new technique helps education, but there's, I'm wondering if there's a like better way to monitor the new technique. Like, you know, parents uh, feel comfortable if their kids go home and then they have something to do, play with internet or whatever, they won't feel boring, right? The parents feel comfortable. But on the other hand, they will think, oh, what are they going to do on the internet? Well, I think the professor from, is it Regina? University of Regina? Yeah. Or, yeah. He was mentioning this idea of kind of surfing with family or, or that families engage in activity online. And I think when you see your television and your internet, and all of that converging into one place, one space, I think you'll see more and more of that taking place. So I think the family will start to, I would agree with, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the gentleman. Professor name. Spooner. 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 Mark. But, uh, I, you know, I think he's right in that there will be a, an increased activity, so, think, with uh, family. I think the time is uh, done, but uh, okay. Mark Spooner said, uh, Mark Spooner indicated that it was riveting, and that's, a, uh, I think, a very accurate uh, phrase, and it was, uh, quite a it was quite a relief. Uh, I know uh, Calvin worked hard to get the sound right. Uh, there was a lot... Give Calvin a hand. There was a lot to this uh, webcast, and uh, thank you so much. Uh, uh, Can Phil hear me? In uh, Edmonton and Regina, and uh, thank you in the class, and thank you Calvin, and thank you Justin. And uh, uh, so we'll look for the uh, essay to describe the web conference last week at Standoff and here in Regina, and uh, we'll see you next week. And you might want to uh, explore the Canadian Islamic Congress and Google the Canadian Islamic Congress and look at some of their articles. Phil, Phil, good luck with that dissertation defense. And that was excellent. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Phil. See you guys. Hey, thanks, Phil. I don't know if you can hear me. I can, yeah, that's great. I have we met before? Yeah, I think we met, uh, you know what, I can't remember where we met. <laughs> to be honest.
But I know we met once before. Isn't that funny? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry about the video. Uh, it, it occurred to us shortly after we connected that whatever I was uh, recording was actually going to be what uh, 